tell everybody a little bit about what you do. So I'm a professor of architecture and urban design at Georgia Tech, mm -hmm. and I co-wrote with June Williamson a book called Retrofitting Suburbia, where we look at all the ways, well, I maintain a, dat a database, I believe the only one in the world, no one else would do this, um, <laughs> <laughs> that... So it's not out of pride, it's somewhere out of kind of shame. And I'm a geek, yeah, I love yeah. this stuff. Um, so I, I maintain the world's only database that tracks how example, real examples of de how dead malls, dead big box, dying commercial strip corridors, office parks, golf courses, branch banks, aging subdivisions, aging garden apartments. It's all the suburban property types, typical suburban property mm -hmm. types, ways in which they're being retrofitted one way or another into more sustainable places. Right. And um, so that, uh, you know, I, I teach at tech, I write, I research, and I advocate. Yeah, so that's kind of the, the key of, or maybe the, the synopsis of what you do. How did you, um, well, first of all, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in suburbia, or did you grow up in a very cool? Or I grew up in New Jersey, in the New most York. suburban state in the country. The and oldest suburban state in the country, it, probably. Well, yeah, I mean, New Jersey doesn't have any really great cities. It, it, you know, we go to, my dad commuted to New York. Mm. Uh, it, it, we were equidistant from New York and Philadelphia. Uh, my entire education from preschool to through master's degree was in the town of Princeton, which is a nice, a lovely uh, suburban community. But I don't think it's an, a coincidence that I, it's a sort of Oedipal complex that yeah. I am trying to retrofit my state. We've done a <laughs> lot of these, and I know, like, we're speaking to Ryan Gravel or other um, architects, the people who seem to get really passionate about urbanism or people who grew up in suburbia or they grew up like Heather Al-Hadeth in the city until she was like 12 and then moved to the suburbs and suddenly she was like, I can't go anyplace. So mm -hmm. it seems to be that experiencing suburbia uncork from ideology seems to really drive a need to get into urbanism. Well, and for me also, as an academic, I was I got a lot of grief from uh, my colleagues that, well, if you're a true urbanist, you'll be you should be working on the downtowns. What are you doing working on the suburbs? Right. Whereas and I kept responding, well, you know, you guys already your generation already answered all the intellectual questions about what we should be doing in downtowns for the most part. Okay. And yet I, I do consider myself absolutely an urbanist, and it's the suburbs need our help. The suburbs have been so ignored. The suburbs are actually where most of the most Americans live, and architects have just put up such blinders to just not want to deal with it. And that that sort of interested me. Yeah, so kind of a, an area of un, 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 untapped. And when you think of suburban compared to urban, it's really empty. The whole new untouched land probably oh if things go the way demographics appear to be going there won't be a whole there's just empty space it's just unutilized and what i'm really interested in is not so much the empty space but the dead space i mean we built the suburb th there's culturally it sort of fascinates me i mean you know our downtowns we expect to be constantly changing you want you expect right. to see new buildings tear down some of the old buildings and right. you're sort of sad to see the old buildings go but you know it's exciting to see the new it's a sign of a healthy economy Cycle all that life kind of thing. exactly yeah. and one expects it yeah the suburbs were always set up as the other as right. the retreat so so the suburbs 
we're deliberately set up. People have an expectation that they will stay frozen in whatever form they were first built in and that change is just a terrible, terrible thing. Right. It's going to bring more traffic, all of that. And yet the suburbs are aging. We've got all this, especially the retail and the commercial properties that were never built to last mm-hmm. um, and they're aging. They really, you know, they, they're they in pretty lousy shape and those in particular, the private realm in suburbia is pretty beloved for the most part. Yeah. But it's it really is those, uh, the places for any kind of public assembly that are, this is an opportunity. Every time I see a dead mall, dead big box, I mean, you can get depressed, but I sort of look at it as opportunity. It's the opportunity, yeah. And now we can address all these things that were not issues when 50, 60 years ago when those sites were built. Right. Sustainability wasn't on anybody's mind. Dealing with issues of energy, whether it's energy, dealing with issues of water, dealing with issues of affordability, social capital, an aging population, jobs and job base, all of these things are actually hitting the suburbs really hard right now as the cities are enjoying a fantastic and much welcomed renaissance. Yeah, and I think, I think it's kind of what you're hinting at too is when those, those 50s and 60s suburbs developed, they were responding to conditions that came before that. They were rational decisions and in a lot of ways, either things we didn't know or the success of those systems have created new problems which have to be Absolutely. Addressed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of unintended consequences. And, mm-hmm. and you see, it's fascinating, I think, also to really look at just how gen- different generations perceive things. Yeah. I mean, if you grew up in the 70s, cities hadn't really... The heyday of the cities was the 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really... And that's the period that both the New Urbanists and Rem Coolhouse kind of look back to as the glory days. Like Delirious New York very much looks at buildings from that period. Has a, and yeah. the 20s were, the cities were being invested in, they were lively, they were, they were the ambitious place where ambitious people went. Right. Um, then you had the, th- the Depression in the 30s and nobody was investing anywhere. Right. Then the wo- World War II, nobody was investing in the cities. By the time the vets came back, the cities, everything was falling apart. They were overcrowded. Suburbanization was absolutely the answer. And so all the new investment for the last 50 years kind of was really targeted out to the suburbs. The cities kept declining so that people in the kind of growing up, a lot of folks you know, really thought of the cities as dirty, crime-ridden, decrepit Mm -hmm. places. And they really... For a large, to a large degree, they were. Yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> you know, and yet, and so, you know, I mean, it's, it's I hate to just refer to TV things, but, um, I mean, for a generation, I, I grew up watching Hill Street Blues and Law and Order. I mean, that was the per- perception of right. cities. Then you get a no, a new generation that's growing up in the suburbs, and they're really bored. They're uh, and for them, they're growing up watching Friends and Seinfeld and Sex in the City, and the city becomes this kind of exciting, interesting, hip, fun place. And the reality also is that enough cities really have been so incredibly regenerated. Crime mm-hmm. is way down. They're much safer, cleaner, fun mm-hmm. places. Um, and yet it's really hard for that older generation to conceive that any why anyone would really want to live in a city. Yeah, and there's also just been I think so many well, 
three or four generations of people living in suburbia, and that's what they think of. So um, I was speaking with uh, some people downtown Atlanta who live down there, and they were like, one of the problems is we don't get recognized as a neighborhood because we don't have any houses, but we all live down here, and we consider ourselves neighbors. Absolutely. I know. I've, I've Downtown just needs more more people living there. It, it's really, it really <laughs> is kind it of really a simple does. solution. It's just kind of more people living down there, and then it'll kind of take care of itself. So, um, but you didn't start off in urban planning. You started off, mm -hmm. you got an architecture degree from, from Princeton, and then you mm -hmm. got your master's degree. Mm -hmm. And this is something I've seen a lot of architects do. And start with buildings and being interested in that, and then finding that, I guess, the questions that they're asking or what the impact they want to make is in this other realm that had been kind of, forfeited by architects to other professionals, or not forfeited, maybe just abandoned or something? Well, so I think for me, the uh, I went from New York, I, I from New Jersey, I went and worked in New York for about five years. Um, my last job was with Peter Eisenman's ar architects, and you know, I was uh, enjoying very much working right. on buildings. Uh, and then it was really just the price of real estate. That got my, uh, my husband and I, at that point, got engaged, and we started looking for a place to live, and we just kept, the w circle, the search kept getting wider and wider and until we were looking in New Jersey. And I was like, no, no, we're I don't want to go Jersey. back to New Jersey. I'm going to apply for teaching jobs. Yeah. So that was when I made the jump for, to teaching, and I ended up with a job in Charlottesville, Virginia, University of, uh, University of Virginia. Mm -hmm. Beautiful town, beautiful campus mm -hmm. and everyone on the faculty is trying to teach the students how to design to excellence to be at the very top of the pyramid of right. what architects love like every student's gonna be Frank Lloyd Wright every student right. absolutely is being taught and, and and getting a terrific education but absolutely the goal is to be at that pinnacle mm -hmm. and I was in addition to teaching studio also teaching contemporary theory and I began getting a little bit concerned. It was like, you know, how many, we cr we're so self-critical as a profession. Yeah. How many buildings say depressive. a year do we consider are at that pinnacle, you know, that we would all, as a as right. professionals, maybe 10 a year, maybe. Like in the world? <laughs> the world. Yeah, yeah, like 10 are actually where you actually get excited and it looks like, yeah, something and, new. And everybody agrees, this is really raising the bar. You right, know? right. And it's just, I mean, our track record, and meanwhile, little idyllic Charlottesville, you could practically hear the bulldozers coming down sort of from D.C. as sprawl mm -hmm. was just in beginning to engulf yeah. Charlottesville. And I was involved in, in a couple of architectural projects where it's you're out kind of in the sprawlscape, and even if you can convince, you know, CVS to put a brick facade on their otherwise building, you haven't changed squat. Right, you know, and right. I got so frustrated that even if you did a absolutely exquisite building, but it's in sprawl, yeah, it's doesn't matter. It, it it's still and and I get frustrated that you know all the photography in the magazines never really shows the context. Right, we're still right. treating everything as this pristine little object, and I just got more and more interested in, you know, maybe what we really need to do is not focus on the pinnacle, but how do we raise the bottom? Yeah, how do you make all those, that 99.999% of buildings better? Better. Because that's and what we're all going to be doing. Exactly. So yeah. I got much more interested in what is this, what are the rules that sort of govern this developer product? What are the, you know, that where architects are in fact very involved, but never, it's not part of our discourse. It's not right, what we right. 
uh, focus on. And I got that sort of through that, um, uh, you know, you, you, I started getting more interested in zoning codes and and the rules that require that the architecture be treated as an object and yeah, not yeah. really engage and build a, a larger community. So um, rules like setbacks and required parking, so you single can't use and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, I think, a great story that demonstrates that. It's, um, I think, it was from Malcolm Gladwell's book um, about connections, and he was studying the Gore company makes Gore-Tex, and they have a rule where. I think 150 is the max people at any facility because they figure at 150 you know people you can interact mm -hmm. none of us have positions and they say well, what if you have a really successful factory and you want to add more capacity in that area like oh we just built a factory on the other side of the parking lot and the parking lot's big enough to ensure that nobody there's still two separate communities <laughs> and I was like it kind of blew my mind mm -hmm. that's it's a very fragile thing maintaining an urban context so as you're talking the best building in the world dropped into that doesn't have much impact in Aesthetically or in a whole bunch of other ways. Absolutely. And yet, again, you start, I started looking then at, well, what percentage of construction is actually happening in suburbs versus mm -hmm. in, in cities? And because the cities are compact inherently, right. we all see all this, this sort of high rises and things, and we think, oh, yeah, you know, the suburbs, they're just low rise and stuff. It is astonishing. Um, it, whether you look at just number of contracts for buildings, it's about 75% is out in the suburbs. Right. If you look at actual square feet, it's about 90% is out in the suburbs. I mean, today, 72% of jobs in the U.S. are in the suburbs. And even that, not in downtown, you know, so we, and yet as architects, architectural education, we tend to uh, teach students i think every school in one way or another teaches students how to relate a building to an urban context there's yeah. always some studio you know there's always some point where the student is is really working within within a kind of gritty or good urban context right. and then we t sometimes most schools also teach students in one way or another how to relate architecture to a beautiful, pristine, natural condition. You yeah. know, that amazing, beautiful site. You build a little Richard Meyer right. house somewhere out in the woods, the, and it's just a beautiful little pristine white thing. And exactly. Yeah. You know, and how many studios actually deal with suburban context? Right. Like almost none. My generation certainly didn't get any, any of that at any school. And now there's like a handful of studios in different schools that sort of you know, uh, think that actually taking the site behind the Dunkin' Donuts next to the old Home Depot, you know, it, is that sort of the new frontier for a f for a few folks? But it's still, I there's not enough of the creativity and criticality being brought to suburban the reality yeah. of where practice is actually occurring in the schools. Well, when you start looking at suburban sites with that kind of urban background, you're looking at well. What's the adjacent to building and stuff like that? You, the diagrams you end up with are kind of poor. There's no, there's not a lot mm -hmm. there from an architecture point of view. And if you think about it, there aren't a lot of buildings. So it's a really, I guess it's really open, and that kind of is intimidating. And yeah. then, of course, what we're interested in is because we're architects as cities. I mean, you get you get interesting responses. I mean, I think you know Mac and Merrill uh, have, have they were. I think really insightful in terms of the ways that they looked that much more at rural kind of materiality mm -hmm. and rural um, 
ways of assemblage of kind right. of vernacular things, and yet brought that abs- into a very high design. Uh, a lot of the libraries that they yeah, did, you know, yeah. really, I think. Are actually, many of them are in suburban contexts, and they yeah, they, they are a few in they yeah. had a, they have their own unique way of very much looking at the context, um, and bringing kind of a references to it. There's a, a, a whole lot of different approaches, but yeah. it, it for me it clearly became. I got I said you know again one individual building at a time isn't going to make enough of an impact. Certainly, just the volume you were talking about is just. Um, apocryphal numbers exactly yeah. we we need urbanism and we need urbanism in the suburbs and that got me sort of interested in newer in the um congress for the new urbanism it got mm-hmm. me interested in urban design in general and rewriting the rules rewrite redesigning the regulations that regulate sprawl yeah. that is where the impact is well I, I think people have a tendency to look at what the built environment is and assume it's um like an ecosystem and the, and the and the economy works like that and the strongest survive not realizing the difference between uh, a natural ecosystem is that it exists outside of man and the ecosystem for development are these rules mm-hmm. and regulations you're talking about so they're I mean suburbia is totally planned and designed it's the we most don't highly subsidized version of housing ever in the history of the world pretty much absolutely and yes and it's it was designed to segregate uses and to require auto dependence, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it, it's not a quote unquote natural organic Mm-mm. system by no. by any stretch. Uh, so we can redesign it, and yeah. so that's what I got I got interested in. And Atlanta's a terrific place to be. You know, if one's interested in how are suburbs evolving, how are suburban property types being uh, changed, how's the the demographics changing? You know, Atlanta's a fascinating place to be to be based in to look what for looking at these trends. Yeah, professionally, it's very interesting, and um, a lot of people from New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, San Francisco, often don't quite see the appeal of it, but it just is full of interesting questions to work with, mm-hmm. and and. Is progressively becoming a more interesting, diverse place to live, which is really exciting to be a part of and see, I think. And that diversity is happening not in downtown. That diversity is happening out in the suburbs. That's true, yeah. The most diverse census tract in all of metro Atlanta is right just outside 285, sort of centered on Buford Highway uh, in Gwinnett. Well, I, I grew up in central Gwinnett, and there were probably a in, a, in my graduating class, about 550 people, there were probably there were less than 20 who would have been considered uh, people of color or diverse or anything mm-hmm. like that. And now it's there's a big, giant Korean population out there, which surprised me. One and of a, the largest in the in the country. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's Korean's the sec- third most popular language in the in Georgia, and then of course there's a big Latino population, which probably doesn't surprise people because they've been s- moving as immigrants so mm-hmm. much. But it's it's an incredibly different place than it was twenty something years ago when I left yeah. high school. Well, and those changing demographics, both in terms of the age of households, uh, in terms of the ethnic background of households, those have a lot to do with different, uh, you know, different desires, aspirations, kind of for how the built form responds to them. Mm-hmm. I think in to a large degree, especially the Korean community in Gwinnett, loves the suburban kind of 
yeah. uh, lifestyle and, and, and focus of uh, uh, around schools as kind of the, the community anchors. Uh, I think that, there, you know, there's a, the value, a lot of um, the values really al- align, whereas the Hispanic community is quite different and chooses quite different parts of uh, the county to, mm-hmm. to settle in. And, and so it's, it's really fascinating. But there are a lot of surveys that show um, there's a, a great survey uh Done, it produced, I'm blanking on who it was done by. Uh, Belden and Rusinello were the firm that did this survey for the National Association of Realtors. Okay. So they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not being ideological. They're just trying to figure out where's the market Who's going. Who's buying what, where. Exactly. What do people want? Right. And so they set up a pretty extensive, very, I mean, academics respect this survey. It's, it, it was done very methodically. Right. Asking people, what trade-offs are you willing to make? You know, do you... You know, if you were offered the, if you could afford the big house on the big lot, but it comes with a long commute, you know, do you like that scenario, or yeah. would you rather be able to walk to at least some of your daily needs, even if it means a small, but it, but it means a smaller house on a smaller lot and right. stuff. And what they found pretty overwhelmingly was the group that most like the quote unquote more um, large lot, less dense, more sprawling scenario mm-hmm. are of all the groups were Caucasian white male you know white males and the groups that tended to most value access to transit being able to walk um, a more urban uh, kind of condition although in the suburbs were uh, women of color in a various uh, that's interesting and of course they were just they weren't looking at any of the perhaps reasons why. They were just looking at the demographic alignments to figure they, out. They go into all sorts of polls. They, oh, they, do they? they do, Oh, yeah. There's a lot of interesting polls. I mean, and, and the polls keep reinforcing the same basic message that, that attitudes are, are significantly changing, mm-hmm. but they also, you know, you get different numbers. One of the, um, a year ago when APA, uh, American Planning Association, mm-hmm was in Atlanta, yeah. they did released a poll that they did with uh, a Harris poll where they oversampled for Georgia because they knew they were they were going to release it at, at APA. Right. And they found that less than 10% of the market that's most likely looking to buy a home in the next five years, which are the young baby boom, boomer, that's what they call the active baby boomers, the tail, the younger the tail end, end yeah. and then the um, and millennials, Less than 10% want to live in a suburb where you have to drive everywhere. Right. But there's le- much less consensus about what they want. So there's more consensus about what they don't want than what they're actually looking for. So you really do, th- it, it, and it's, it is interesting just that looking would, at all and this. And that would make sense to a bit. It hasn't really quite been, if you don't think about this all the time, it becomes harder to define what you want. You kind of know the things that are out there. It's kind of walking mm-hmm. up to the buffet and you're like, I don't want any of this right now. Right. Well, what would you want? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm not a chef. So, um. But there's, there's other surveys that have shown that uh, up to 60% of people in the market right now can't find what they want right. at a price they can afford in that, um, and that most of that is, is that they can't find walkability. Walk and walkability has been is becoming so valuable valued that now the prices 
have escalated enormously. Well, once you, I think once you experience living in a place that has some degree of walkability, it becomes, I mean, this happened to me when I, did, I lived in France as part of the Georgia Tech Study Abroad program. It happened to my wife when she lived in D.C. after getting a job. You suddenly become, it becomes illustrated very clearly for you what some of the drawbacks are of living in a drive-only area. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the anger level you have just through a commute is yeah. just different, and it drops off when you're riding your bike or you're walking. I, I, um, you're working. You're driving a 10,000-pound yeah. death machine, so you need to pay attention. I killed my car. It was my fault. Nobody was hurt. <laughs> not me. But uh, about almost six months ago. And I did the math. I mean, I basically just – I have a relatively short four-mile commute yeah. to Georgia Tech. I, um, I had only been driving uh, less than 4,000 miles a year for nine years. Yeah. And I couldn't justify buying a new car. And I kind of, so I've been car free now yeah. in Atlanta for almost six months. I've been tracking my trips just because I am a geek. I like to you monitor things. You know what the numbers are. And I'm just, you know, it's, this is an experiment. And it, it has been so interesting to see how I ex experience the city differently, mm -hmm. what I enjoy, what I don't enjoy. I've only gotten drenched once. Pretty good for That's almost good six for months. Six months, and you're going through a pretty wet season right now. So. I thought that winter was going to be the real test. Winter was a breeze. Now I'm realizing no summer is going to be yeah. the test. <laughs> yeah, getting to a meeting and not just being completely. <laughs> but sometimes you have to adjust your standards for. Well, a lot of design is that. There's no perfect design, but it's um, it's what you can live with, mm -hmm. and so you kind of you'll choose to live with something that you might not have otherwise. You actually find all sorts of hidden delights. I mean, it's a really, I, I do arrive at work just so much happier. I feel lucky that I have turned my commute into a pleasure. A pleasure. Absolute pleasure. You're getting exercise. I'm getting exercise. Yeah. And on the days, I, I have a, several neighbors that also teach at tech or work at tech, and mm -hmm. I can, I often, um, you know, can hitch a ride, and I'll sometimes even send an email out, you know, around 5 o'clock or something like anybody heading back to Inman Park, yeah. you know, in the next hour. And, and, I'll, and, and I have a great chance to socialize with someone who I don't otherwise really, you know, get to see that. I mean, I've had the best conversations in those ad hoc kind of carpool the, um, uh, moments. One of our uh, board members is actually, she's a millennial. And she works for Gensler in Midtown. And she lives down off of Fifth Street. And she talks about she's got her uh, commute buddies. Because mm -hmm. they all go at the same time. There's just the same five or six people she crosses, and they walk, they, they bump into each other, and they mm -hmm. walk down Peachtree Street, and they know each other, and they talk, which is like nothing I ever thought of. But that's there's a sense of community there that you don't get when you're absolutely even on the car. bikes um, when you're stopped at a light. Yeah, there's a a culture, not always, but there's something of a culture. Especially the closer you get to Georgia Tech, the more likely people say you go into tech. You know, I mean, I, yeah, you, we all we do, and you just start and students biking around. And absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, you, you build up little. Cool. Conversations. I'm going to stop for a second and reset. I can only record for so long. Throughout the Congress of New Urbanism, mm -hmm. which I guess is sort of a, a threshold point between 20th century suburban planning models as the dominant form of thought and what's really going on now in shifting changes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And I, th I believe you were involved, if I remember correctly, very heavy on in it. So, Absolutely. give us the breakdown of Congress of New Urbanism. Well, I'll tell I'll tell my story, and, and there, that's good. You know, 
I went to my first, so I, you know, I was kind of interested in this critique of sprawl, yeah. and I, I totally agreed with the new urbanist critique of sprawl, and that yeah. was where, you know, I, so I was kind of curious about it, um, but I went to my first CNU in 1994, that was CNU 3, and uh, as sorry, I w- did you say 1994? 1994. Oh, I thought they would have had it more by 1994. No. Okay. Projects had been around, but the actual Congress, um, it might have, maybe it was 1995 was my first one, actually, mm-hmm. because uh, senior one, yeah, one was in 93, two was in 94, three was in 95, so it was actually spring of 95. Okay. And um, so I'd missed the first two, uh, but I went to the my first as an academic spy because I really was interested in the critique but I was very skeptical and suspicious about the solution you know was seaside who were these disney-fied nostalgic neo-trad I I had the exact same sort of stereotype typical knee-jerk reactions that a lot most architects this is all retrograde throwback to dreamland and Patterns of patriarchy, absolutely. You know <laughs> what? What? Um, Deep communist and socialist criticisms of it. Well, what I actually, what I actually kind of found I really quite enjoyed about Seaside was how much, if it's being attacked on the one hand by the academics as this totally retrograde right wing patterns of patriarchy kind of thing, and mm-hmm. yet it's being attacked um, by the right. The folks on the right are attacking this as social engineering, commie, yeah. you know, controlling of, of, of way over-regulated, um, you know, communist condens- social condensers. Yeah. I kind of thought, wow, there's got to be something in there that's kind of interesting. And both um, sides hate it. There has to be something that yeah. it, at least it knows what it's doing. So uh, for me, but I really, when I went to that first Congress, I was stunned at how much I learned. Uh, at that point, you know, I w- you would, as an academic, you would, could go, t- there, everyone was talking in academia about interdisciplinarity, and so it would mean you'd go to a session at a conference or something, and there'd be a literary critic, a geographer, and an architect, all c- talking about the exact same footnote from Walter Benjamin. And I'm <laughs> sorry, you know, that to me, I'm not learning a hell of a lot when it's actually everyone's making really the same set of footnotes just because they're coming from a different discipline. Yeah. Whereas at CNU, I would go to a session and you would see, and a project would be presented by the designer, but with also then by the developer, also by the public permitting official and the traffic engineer. And you got to understand, wow, so that's how that works. That's why that decision was made. I mean, really well, yeah, got yeah. a much I learned a lot, and I've never missed one since. So I was invited to be on the board uh, way back when, um, and my last two years on the board from 2012 to 2014, I was chair of the board of right. CNU. So yes, I'm an insider. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, I get architects sometimes saying to me, but Ellen, you're a modern architect. You're not really a new urbanist. I'm like, Yes, I am a modern architect. I live in a loft with all modern furniture. My taste is absolutely modern and contemporary. But I am a traditional urbanist. Right. I'm a modern architect. And I don't have a problem with that, though I know a lot of people do, who do. It is funny that somehow, I, I do think there's something in modern architecture and training that makes, can I, I mean, we talked about working on urban sites. 
but it makes a really making a really urban building sometimes difficult like a focus on functionality and every room has to have a right angle and sometimes your site doesn't have right angles so you break from the edge mm -hmm. um and then new urbanism was very um opportunistic a lot of times so there were traditional buildings so they weren't interested that much in the building form well but it, it gave kind of a misnomer to people what it meant i think so i mean in it it's um it's still the, the style issue is still a debate i'm sort of dreading <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> i'm going to be in a session again at cnu this year i've been asked and i really kind of don't i'm tired of of retreading the same arguments on the style but i think when when new, most of the um the longtime new urbanists have always viewed style as a strategic tool in your toolbox and that especially early when you're working in a suburban context and not all new urbanism did all i mean does, has done more affordable housing than anybody in in right in the downtowns all the hope right. six work all that so it's not all out in the suburbs but the part that i was especially interested in was were the the new urbanists who were working on reconfiguring suburbs right and if they're going into an area of where the people deliberately chose to live in the suburbs urban is a bad word to them they don't want mixed use they don't want mixed income they mm -hmm. don't want transit they don't not really very interested in public space and all right. of the things that the urbanists value using the most neo-traditional sweet unthreatening coyingly seductive you know architecture to clothe and mask that mixed use was a very deliberate using of putting the sheep's uh, clothing over the wolf of urbanism. Right, right. And it was a, it was a strategic targeted uh, move. What's been really interesting is now, as new urbanism has caught on, and as Dwell Magazine and kind of you know popularized at, architectural has, has popularized urban is now ascendant and is popular and is not such a bad word, there's also much more openness in the suburbs to more contemporary design. Some of the yeah. retrofits, I, I love a Mosaic District and, and Surrey. Um, out, out, these are phenomenally good contemporary design where it, the developers are now actually seeing using contemporary design as a way to reposition the suburbs and to show that now you can actually have this suburban location, have an urban lifestyle, have hip dwell-like architecture right, right. in a way that, frankly, you can't in downtown. Downtown DC is kind of stodgy architecturally. So yeah. it's actually out in the burbs that you get the more uh, dwell magazine lifestyle. Yeah, so. yeah, the kind of, um, I guess, opportunistic yeah. too. And I think that's a real, actually a really modern philosophy though, is that you have these tools that you can solve problems with. So getting less <laughs> caught up in the form, which to me always sounds a little bit more classical mm -hmm. and, and worrying about, so it looks traditional, but I think it's actually a modern way of, of thinking. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to me, what different people are attracted to CNU, Congress for New Urbanism, mm -hmm. for very different reasons. It started on the one hand as Calthorpe on the West Coast, absolutely a, an environmentalist. He really doesn't care about style. He cares about issues of sustainability and environmentalism right. and transit-oriented development. It's absolutely what his, he's championing. Right. Then you had Dwani Plater-Seiberg in Florida, the East Coast, leading kind of the East Coast, 
really interested in this in the social engineering aspect that how a building meets the street and having whether if it's residential that having a porch that is close enough to the street that people will wave right. you know, that you can get the driveways off so that you really make that street a social outdoor room mm -hmm. and make it attractive so interested in the aesthetics as a means of community building right um, so they had a completely different agenda what they what Calthorpe and DPZ agreed on was they had a common enemy, but they didn't actually agree on the same kind of solution, but they actually also agreed that together, ooh, they were more powerful right. you know, the, a, a, as they came together. But I came into CNU, what, I, what attracted me was not the neo-traditionalism, but the radicality of these were the folks who were actually rewriting zoning codes, actually changing the rules of the game right. in a way that actually most architects, oh, I'm radical because I made an acute angle. Right, know. right. It was a kind of that kind of it was kind of radical in a kind of an accepted sphere of study, and this was a radicalism in a place where nobody was was looking, which I guess moves me on to another um, thing that we'd kind of mentioned, which was the kind of phenomenon of the star architects that kind of emerged in the '90s, and these guys doing and women doing this amazing architecture, but it left me a lot of times saying, well, why? I don't understand. I mean, I understand you did a big um, lumpy shape, but yeah. It's really, I think it's been, um, it's interesting, again, all of these ideas evolve. And modernism, when you, if you go back to uh, the Bauhaus and in, in the, mm -hmm. uh, you go back even further, uh, the, er, the Enlightenment, which is really where a lot of these, the rational basis for design kind of thinking emerges from. Right. It was absolutely had a very clear social agenda. This was to, the, the, you know, when, Ar when Le Corbusier said um, architecture or revolution, Right. revolution can be avoided. I mean, he said, you know, if we can provide mass housing for people and give people a decent mm -hmm. place to live and work, you know, it, it bet we improve society. That we it, that improve their lives and we re reduce right. revolution. I mean, literally, I think it's very, Absolutely. it sounds idealistic, but it's a very conscientious, Absolutely. Thing. And it was a, a complete shift from a sense that architecture exists only to help the 1% live the life of a wealthy person, you know, and teach them, here's right. how the wealthy live. That was really what the job of architects, when their patrons were princes, and, um, you know, yeah. that's what the job was. And now it's in an, uh, I think, kind of tragic way. I mean, star architecture has actually completely reverted us back to that the role of the star architect is to show the new plutocrat, the new, the new supremely wealthy uh, person, or supremely, you know, the the dictator of a, a country in various places, you know, how to use architecture to absolutely display their wealth, and and it's become a distinguished, you know, MoMA, and, and even at a less high level. I mean, yeah. Avant-gardeism is now more of a style choice that's to distinguish the elites from the hoi polloi in the middle class. Yeah, and, yeah. and that was never what it was its intentions were. But that's what star architecture has to a, certainly, um, that's been the unintended consequence. Right. And that seems to have um, some sort of roots in, in 
correct me if you disagree, in kind of the postmodern idea of architecture as architecture being something in and of itself worth studying, and that a project can be about architecture. And so you had a lot of paper architecture in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of um, architecture based off of postmodern ideas of symbols. And it doesn't have to relate to anything. It just has to create a whole system of itself. And then that evolves into this architecture where people are buying into it in the same way you would have been uh, 19th century England to say, I know what the hippest things are because I'm a man of means and have, mm -hmm. the, have the time to study these things. So I'm going to be the most sophisticated. Yeah, it's definitely part of the whole taste. Uh, architect as taste maker, architect as, uh, mm -hmm. as sophisticated yeah. um, to help their clients you know, with all of that. I, I'm not sure, uh, in some respects, actually, Starkitecture emerges as a backlash against postmodernism, though. I mean, it's... Yeah, it sort so of kind of takes it and twists it, I guess. I yeah. see what you're saying. Like, they're, I guess a lot of the postmodern architects really aren't interested in being understood, or I don't know how... They well, I think that. a lot of postmodernism was about this sort of looking back and learning, looking back to... Um, whether it was 1920s building or symbolism and, and, mm -hmm. and you know incorporating all of those th things and, and you know a lot of really wretched uh, buildings came out <laughs> of some of that well, but every style has it then sense. you get deconstructivism really emerging as an absolute reaction and rejection of that world and it was the deconstructivist projects that kind of then very also quickly um, led to a lot of the blob buildings and, th and th that's where one really sees these very expensive buildings that are whether whether they're for museums or whether they're palaces or whether you know they're off they, those are often i think the buildings where one sort of says what's the social agenda here now you know yeah. wh where'd it go <laughs> deconstructivism ended up having a lot of thought about how building systems kind of went together, but then doing it in a way that was sort of automatic and illogical and create all these different shapes. And then, of course, the definition kind of morphed into anything with funky shapes on it. Um, I mean, I had a, it had a deep intellectual, um, some of it, you know, it, yeah. it, it, as with any of these things, there's sort of the thinkers and the, the, and the makers that and aren't then, yeah, always in sync. There are things that are kind of folded into that because that's the closest yeah. thing they fit to. But if, to the degree that Deconstructivism was part of a sort of post-structuralist worldview that really is not an optimistic point of view. It's a point of view that kind of says um, any art form should be holding up the mirror to show how cracked uh, the, our systems of thought are. And architecture had always previously, really always been that much more optimistic inherently we're building for future uses we're building for the future well you'd be crazy and not to invest that much money in something if you weren't somewhat yeah. optimistic yeah. energy and time so yeah. i have to say of, of all the I, you know I, I i'm not i look back at postmodern architecture in the buildings and i'm eh, you know they, they look a lot of them stucco versions of references to clat to stone architecture i mean just right. make you know make me wince right but if I never have to read another post-structuralist um, theoretical critique, uh, it will be too soon. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, I didn't, been there, done that. Right. And, and um, I can footnote Derrida as well as anyone. I actually had to translate some of his letters to Peter Eisenman in the office. But, you know, I'm just so beyond that. Well, those were the most torturous things to read. And then the, the professor says, so what do we think about this? And you're like, about what? <laughs> exactly. 
Because the teacher yeah, will start talking. I'm like, I got the, I don't know what happened. I got the opposite out of that. And, and then at least mm -hmm. in postmodernism, there is an idea of a social order and a construct. And sometimes I guess mm -hmm. it's extreme. It's, it's all just social construct. Uh. But that's a reality. And there's something you can work with there that can be towards positive. Well, and I think there, I do think the world of ideas in architecture is something postmodernism and poststructuralism, certainly in that sense, followed right through with it, really elevated a discussion of architecture as a vehicle capable, just like any other art form, of talking about ideas. Mm -hmm. I studied under Michael Graves, and he, he recently died, and there's been yeah. a lot of, um, you know, I've been in touch with a lot of other alums. About a guy who's done great and bad, postmodern architecture. Absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, when I was in school, so Michael would bring Peter Eisenman to uh, crits all the time. And it was absolutely, uh, you know, I look back at how, and what an amazing dialogue we were subject to. Michael, people, I was really disappointed with most of the obituaries. They just sort of focused on, oh, he designed things for Target. You know, Andy <laughs> was an architect. You know, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. But, yeah. You know, but what Michael was fundamentally a humanist. And he was always sort of teaching us ways of reading a narrative into buildings of that fundamentally says man humans you know um, occupy the a landscape and mm -hmm. buildings whether it's the interior of the building whether it's the exterior of the building in one way or another are describing a, a means of occupying that landscape and that it gets richer and richer with various ways in which you you can kind of tap into subconscious things and so I mean the titles of his yeah. lectures were things like celestial soffits and and chest of drawers everything it, from furniture to to big ideas but then you can invite Eisenman to reviews and Eisenman is fundamentally an anti-humanist who believes that we in philosophically like Ala Nietzsche, uh, you know, we created the tools uh, that we now live in a world where mach the machines we have created can destroy us, and we have become fundamentally alienated from the very objects that we ourselves have created. We have right. created a world that we cannot occupy in an optimistic way. Now, Peter's actually a really quite delightful optimistic kind of guy but he's um his world view i mean th we would this is how we would talk about projects and you as a student were suddenly like oh my god i, I don't know am i a humanist or anti-humanist <laughs> uh, what do i believe what, we, you know but i mean it was it was so not a discussion about just sort of functional arrangements yeah you talk about some of that right, right. it wasn't really a discussion about cities either but it was a discussion about how we are in the world and what is your role? How does architecture represent the world that we all live in? And it was pretty heady, heady times. And, and, and post-structuralism continued that discussion just right. much more along the anti-humanist vein. Right, and so, um, that must have been fascinating. <laughs> I mean, because I could both of them, you'd be like, I don't know who's right. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what point they're arguing, but they're <laughs> both making good points. It was really fun to sit at reviews and sit behind Kenneth Frampton, who would be sort of in the middle, and you'd watch the red on his neck climb up and then up his ears, and then he'd explode and tell them they both were wrong and they needed to focus on tectonics. Right, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
And uh, Frampton's done a lot of, he's, he's known prominently as a writer, right? Primarily, but he's okay. very much an architect okay. also. I think I know him yeah, mostly yeah. through his writings, and it's the names start to get crossed he's in a, my mind. If he's I don't a professor at Columbia, Yeah. and so he would also be invited to reviews. And, and back then, reviews, nowadays, I mean, reviews really are, um, the critics listen to the student and, and make eye contact, address their comments to the student. That was not the case when I was in school. No? Oh, no. No, the student was merely a foil, and if you were Graves' student, the comments are directed from the critics to Graves. So it's almost a proposition in a debate, and then they start from there. Oh, yeah, and yeah. everyone else, every, you're, everyone is there to learn, everybody, but it's not about your project. Your right. project is just the foil for the discussion. Right, right. It, it was a very different, um, we got beat up, but it, in a certain way it wasn't personal. <laughs> It takes a while to learn that. The first time you go through a criticism, it 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 can really uh, scar you until yes. you realize it's not it's not you. It's just your project's not any good. Yeah, which your first one usually isn't. Um, and I, I think the discussion on all that stuff, especially, is interesting because I think it shows why so many architects that I know and I think in the profession are moving towards urban planning because it is that move towards humanism. It is that idea that these things are real in the world and they do matter and that we do have. Uh, we are social creatures and we are not totally alienated from ourselves even if I can't fix my own phone when it breaks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or if it's uploading things that well, I don't Precisely want. because we can't fix it. Precisely we, we because can't. Can't. I, need, I need somebody to commiserate You need with. a village, exactly. Uh, yeah, and so you're building villages you have, uh, out of abandoned shopping malls. So mm -hmm. this, is, this has been a, a retrofitting suburbia has been a theme of your work for a long time, but you've also written a book about it, which has gotten some mm -hmm. good reviews. I saw Working on book two. From your website. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I think we've touched on it, and I guess maybe you can just describe a little bit more clearly what's involved with this idea of retrofitting suburban contexts. So really, it's um, when we wrote the book, we had 80 case studies. I maintain a data. The database now is about 1,200, and that's without being particularly systematic. I'm sure it could, I could double it if I had the time. Yeah. But... Um, it's what I'm tracking really is not, you know, if just a dead mall is replaced by a strip mall, I don't count that as if a retrofit. Bulldoze it under and start from scratch. What I'm interested in is if it's making in some way, it's redeveloped, how it is being reused is more sustainable. So June and I categorize of these 12, you know, we have so many case studies now. Mm -hmm. We find it really useful to talk about them in terms of three really basic categories. Okay. So the three strategies, yeah. um, on the one hand, are simply re-inhabit the existing building with a more community-serving use. There are tons of examples, whether it's dead malls, dead, dead big box, that have been turned into schools, libraries, uh, churches, gymnasia, health, health medical clinics, mm -hmm. you know, one way or another, or jobs, providing job centers instead of places to spend, make money right. instead of spend money. So there's an idea of like total sustainability there, not just green, but like maximum value back. Oh, I, sustainability is the three-legged stool. Right. Of, and so the re-inhabitation projects tend to really help social sustainability of their communities. Mm -hmm. um, they often are increasing equity. They're, they're often a really great way of relocalization because especially if the chain stores have left and now you've got mom and pops coming in yeah um 
So it, they, they are in various ways. That they're great on social sustainability, but to get to the triple bottom line mm-hmm. of economic and environmental, environmental right. with the social, you, the reality is you need to reduce the dependence on the automobile. You need to change the fundamental infrastructure. And you do that through creating density where it's, you don't need a car. Right. So the second model is, re- the second strategy is redevelopment. Mm-hmm. So instead of re-inhabitation, you actually are, um, you're scraping most of the site, uh, hopefully reusing some of the buildings uh, right. if, if you can, but, um, and then rebuilding it in a denser, more walkable, mixed use, mixed income hopefully transit served, but maybe it's at least transit feasible okay. um, kind of a development. So what would be like an example of that? It would be just so there's 50 adding a new building to a site that I already have buildings on it. So on, uh, in terms of dead malls, there's 220 dead malls that are being retrofitted in various ways right now. 50 of them are becoming the downtowns their communities never had. Yeah. Uh, so there's just uh, Belmar is a great example. It gets shown mm-hmm. a lot. It's yeah. pretty much built out. It was a 100-acre site with a big regional shopping mall. When the mall died, it today, you know, well, it's been redeveloped. So today it is, um, it was just one block, a big super block, you know, mm-hmm. sea of parking around a big building. Today it's 22 blocks. It's got a street grid of public streets. Right. Retail at the ground level, apartments and offices above, a couple of green public squares. You know, it's it's the downtown. So taking advantage, and there are about fifty of those of that unused space to start breaking up that block and putting a street grid. Okay, and connectivity to the existing streets as much as possible. So you're at least allowing for. folks to to reduce i mean the average suburban house in a suburban situation generates about 10 trips per day wow it and makes sense so at belmar they're getting a 45 percent internal rate of of capture on their parking trips so yes people might still be making a commute trip but every other trip they are pretty much doing because of that mix of uses Mm -hmm. so to see you know, it's not like it's getting rid of tri- all trips, but it is significantly reducing the number and the right. amount and the distance of trips as you get more of these places redeveloped. Yeah. Okay. So that's just the dead malls, but there's there's any there's all sorts of categories. So the redevelopment also allows us to put in place much more energy efficient, water efficient water cleaning, uh, you know, water improve the water quality, daylight the creeks that were culverted because that was normal practice, mm-hmm. um, allows us to require a lot more affordable housing, a lot more smaller units that are uh, important for the changing households. I mean, yeah, it's so... Going from a family idea to a couple or a single person and the uh, aging of the population i mean this is it, yeah there's yeah. real yeah. needs for a lot more of those smaller units right. that the suburbs really have you know the suburb w- the one of the stats that i always include in my talks and it just still people are still kind of tend to really be surprised we think of the suburbs as family focused yeah that's what they've always been designed for right that's not who lives there since 2000, for the last 15 years, two-thirds of suburban households have not had kids in them. And for the next, I think that I just saw the latest stats, 80% of new households through 2030 will not have kids in them. It's just the reality of you, the suburbs in particular were built for the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And 
the baby boomers raised their kids in the suburbs, but they're empty nesters now. The kids yeah. have long since left, but the boomers are still there. Right, right. And the, you, and then the Gen X is uh, uh, in their 30s and 40s. Raising, they're raising kids, but they're a small generation. There just aren't that many of them. The next big generation is Gen Y, and for the most part, they grew up in the suburbs, and most of them are delaying childbirth. They're moving into cities in droves. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just seeing, we're, we are at a point right now where most household growth is no longer suburb, is, is no longer family households. Right. And yet all of our zoning codes everywhere, you know, all the communities all want just uh, th- this. The big house. The with, image. Yeah. Their identity of their community is single-family house. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Kind of even when reality shifts, sometimes identity drags behind that a little bit. Very, very yeah. much so. Yeah. So anyway, that's just sort of an aside. But so the, the third strategy, so redevelopment, though, is Give me a, a second. Big we'll one. get to the third strategy. So. Is re-greening. I mean, we built a lot of suburban development in wetlands. That was normal before the Clean Water Act. Right. Uh, we built, a, and now, I mean, office parks. It's it's astonishing how many office parks were built on top of creeks, and they just culverted the creeks and or created little lakes so that the offices would have lakefront views. Yeah. Well, that worked fine for a while, but now with climate change and more severe storms with mm-hmm. more upstream development the creeks the culverts can't handle it right we're seeing massive flooding in, in commercial areas and increase right. so now th- the, as those properties age we often have the opportunity to now just say hey we never should have built here in the first place it's time to either reconstruct the wetland daylight the creeks put in a park put in a stormwater park i mean mm-hmm. there's and there's just um a, a lot of really interesting examples and a well-designed park actually increases adjacent property values often up to about 30 yeah. percent so it can still be a strategy coupled with redevelopment while providing that open space that allows you to have the higher density mix uh, you know multifamily and mixed use yeah. around it atlanta did that with the old fourth ward park which has mm-hmm. the detention the lake, which is actually a detention pond for the whole neighborhood. Absolutely. And if you go out there, they're building tons building. of housing all around it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And those people have an amazing front yard. And so, right. you know, I think what we're seeing in general is that, and it's still kind of, it's hard for, I think, like my parents' generation and plenty of folks my generation still have a hard time accepting the idea that why would you want to go to a public park instead of have your own little yard. Right. And yet I think for a lot of people are sort of saying, why would I want to maintain a yard <laughs> if I can if I have great public space? Right. I would rather live in a in multifamily and 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 have access to that amazing amenity. So, you know. Exactly. Different people are willing to make different trade-offs. Yeah. 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 So, anyway, this has been great. And the, the reason I wanted to uh, talk to you is I've I've actually we've had conversations with people around the the Beltline, asking questions about how do they get better design, and some of it circles around style, and I think, like you, we were like, I don't, I don't know how you get a better style, it really depends, it's so hard to find. Hire good architects. Hire good architects. I mean, it's that simple. <laughs> but there really seem to be also seeing some of the work being put forward for these sites that are supposed to be urban, or, or suburban at least, and develop into urban, and that are all brownfields, things that have been developed on thinking about what's the difference between how we've done architecture in the past, whether it's architecture or modern architecture or suburban architecture, and how do we do 
something different, mm -hmm. which is what this is. And then somebody, I was talking about them, but then somebody said, well, Ellen was talking to a group and she was letting them have it the other day. And I thought, that's it, we need to get, we need to talk to Ellen. <laughs> and I'm sure I can, I can reach out to Jennifer and she'll do an introduction for us. So um, you're clearly very passionate about it. I, I am. So. Well, I did, I, yeah, what you might be referring to is um, I addressed the AIA Principles Roundtable. That's exactly what it was, yeah. And I, sa I said, you know, it really, really saddened me that I did not, June and I did not illustrate a single project from Atlanta in our first book other than a plan of the Beltline and some diagram things. But, um, you know, we talked about a lot of Atlanta projects because, I, and I do, I rely, I get a lot of, there's a lot happening here. Yeah. But in terms of design, it's never best in class. There's always mm. a better example somewhere else. And I, and, and there aren't enough, you know, uh, they're just always, it always seems like the Atlanta projects fall short on design. And I really, I'm working, and I said, I'm working on book two. I really, I would love to show some more Atlanta projects. There's great planning work. The work of, um, Tanel Spangler Walsh is a firm that I think just does mm -hmm. really astonishingly good work. You see the CSW logo on a lot of things. They, they are doing terrific planning, but, and sometimes they're doing the architecture too, but it's, so, you know, I was kind of asking the, princi the principal, I wasn't intending to just, like, try to shame <laughs> them or something, but I was just sort of saying, what can we do to really raise the bar? And yeah. The standard kind of answer that comes back, and I, I think there's a lot of truth in it, is that, in general, uh, because Atlanta is not constrained, land constrained, I mean, we don't have an ocean or mountains. We need some good, well-placed earthquakes, frankly, I think, to give us more, more boundaries. Yeah, um, create some uh, canyons. But because we don't have that, land values are still quite cheap compared to almost anywhere else. Right. Uh, and in general, if the land is cheap, then the amount that a property owner is willing to invest in the building is always is also tends to be cheap. Right. So we tend, you know, that the most of the the at the principals roundtable, folks were kind of likely to say that put the blame on the, you know we just don't have developers who are really willing to put in that those funds, and we seem to have sort of somehow developed a culture where consumers aren't demanding it, and that uh, why we don't have more consumers demanding better design, I don't know, you know, I, I, right. I, I really wonder, because I do look at, um, there are amazing projects happening in Denver, in Austin, in D.C., and I mean, they're, they're, in Atlanta, there's, to me, there's, there really is no reason why we're not yeah. on that list. There, there's, there's a lot of reasons, I think, probably culturally about Atlanta, but I think, and I think that's true, that we don't, the consumer's not demanding design, which isn't driving, and those things. But I also think there are ways that an architect can give a client what they want if they want to build a big box store in a way that would accommodate future change. And for the architects mm -hmm. to kind of say, well, this is just what, and, and that seems to be the culture in Atlanta architecture. It seems to be the same culture they had in restaurants in the 80s. Well, they don't know what good food is. It's steak and spaghetti. Mm -hmm. so we're just going to give it to them. And then there was an attitude driven by a new generation of chefs that said, you know, what? we're going to serve foie gras and it's going to be great. And People who know will buy it, and people who don't won't, and that's caused a revolution in how restaurants are run. And if yep. you look at the Food Network compared to the Home and Garden Network, mm -hmm. 
it's an amazing different level of yeah. sophistication. So I think that's we need to be asking ourselves those hard questions. So. I think it's really interesting to me that I think some of the best design in Atlanta tends to be when when a restaurant moves into you know some old warehouse type mm-hmm. loft like industrial building you know yeah. it's it's those and you get that old and new really uh working together beautifully and there's such a great sort of feel for it when it is i do think that um i'm less likely to demonize a lot of the multifamily apartment buildings than some uh, than a lot of my architect friends because I do feel like they're meeting a need. They're they're doing it as affordably as you, possible. I mean, a lot of the urbanists I know, everybody wants to recreate Paris. Yeah. And, you know, eight, six, seven, eight stories. Well, at that point, you can't do wood construction. And you right. can't do affordable concrete or steel. You right. have to go up to at least 14, probably more like 18 or 20, to get any kind of affordability. Right. Once you're above the, the wood construction cap at five. Right. So... We end up with, um, you know, kind of neither the urbanists are really pleased nor the architects um, r- really being pleased. But th- the challenge of affordability is is absolutely real. I really respect those architects who are able to innovate and figure out how to do excellent design, whether it's modern or traditional. Mm-hmm. But to do really ex- excellent design, to build well. I mean, I, I think some of um, Serber Barber Choate's work mm-hmm. um, is, uh, at, at, there's a detailed solidity to that, whether they're working in a modern or a traditional style. Again, for me, it's not. It's less about style. Right. Um, but they tell their clients that, hey, traditional is going to cost you more because for us to do it authentically is really, really expensive. For it to look good <laughs> and not look cheap and you to have the product you exactly. want. Yeah. I, um, Torty Gallus is a firm in, in D.C. who do a lot of public housing and, and very affordable housing. And their window details are kind of astonishingly good and, and convincing. And, you know, mm. I mean, they have and they've wrestled with them and they have figured out how to detail in a way that absolutely. Um, and there's a detailing there working with the means at hand. I think that's kind of architects. It's a, it's yeah. a contextualized profession in urban planners and everything. So you can't have the ideal. You got to figure out how to make the best for the most for the least to borrow a phrase and it's 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 recognizing i think that um affordability health i mean affordability is the number one indicator of kind of a health indicator i mean you know it's uh sadly yeah Uh, but i do think that the focus on architects have tended to still sort of focus on the integrity of the object rather than really enough on the impacts and I absolutely, I'm still a very much a designer, and you know I right. really, God, if you get the proportions wrong, you know, <laughs> you, sh- you should have your license stripped away. Because I'm sorry, you know, there's certain fundamentals. Yeah. It's not about style, but it is about proportions and urbanism, so and building in a, a detailing in a way that actually builds things that will have a lasting contribution. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's, uh, you said you're still a designer, so I think that's a good place to go so we can wrap it up. So, so what is design? If you can describe it and how does it matter or how do, what is it? How do you do it? 
So I'm teaching urban design at this point. I don't teach architectural design. Mm -hmm. I teach our um, Master of Science in Urban Design is a post-professional degree. Mostly it's architects and landscape architects. We occasionally get a planner or a um, civil engineer in the the degree. Um, And so we're laying out entire neighborhoods. I... Uh, Richard Dagenhart teaches usually what's the fall semester the studio focuses on how natural systems influence urban design so a lot of attention to stormwater sea level rise mm-hmm. those kinds of things yeah in the and topography in the my studio tends to focus on how real estate dynamics and then transportation influence urban forms so okay. I give a lot of suburban retrofit type sites right and it's Teaching the students, on the one hand, the fundamental dimensions that, frankly, most architects really don't learn. In architecture school, one tends to have projects like libraries or, you know, they're sort of one-off, um, in unique buildings. Yeah, there's not a lot so, of repeated spaces in them, and yeah. And so architect, most architecture students have no idea what the dimensions of ordinary buildings are. You know, how big is a grocery store? How big is a, an apartment building? How big... Right. So these, so there's a, we do a lot of um, teaching about just fundamental dimensions of lots for different building types, dimensions of blocks to get a walkable network, mm-hmm. dimensions of different kinds of streets depending on act- activities, uh, dimensions of public spaces. And from there, then, it's really how do you design all of this? How do you establish a framework that then individual architects will come in and design within right, right. Um, but it's really looking at at how do you establish that framework in a way that it, you know still ha- has some very clear intentions about it um, related to that place right it's not and I guess it's probably it's not completely neutral there's ideas of how it's going to come together but then oh, it's yeah. also open-ended uh, yeah. for that very reason to let architects yeah. do that kind of stuff so that's a lot of what, um, and, and I teach courses on theories of urban design where we read a, l- a bunch of books, uh, you know, um, read certainly a lot of it, uh, articles, but we, we're much, actually reading much, whole books. Much post-structuralist urban planning, I wouldn't imagine. Thank God, no. No, um, <laughs> there, there is certainly, there, I mean, there's a, we read a lot of Rem Koolhaas, and so we mm-hmm. do read, and, and we read, there's, there's now a sort of parametric urbanism, kind of, there's efforts of, of folks <sighs> really trying to, um, and we, we look at that uh, somewhat critically, but uh, mm-hmm. th- so we, we cover a range, yeah, certainly, yeah. a range of things. But yeah. we do start with Jane Jacobs. And St. Jane is still um, she's such like, an important read. She's like the, uh, I always think of like the Freud of urbanism. Like, you may not agree with everything in it, but she was the first person to do anything with it and to think about it. And to articulate it so well. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's, she's, she's still really fun. She's but really start. But I mean, I'm mostly, I'm just most, I do not um, design building. I, I participate in the occasional charrette. Mm-hmm. I give a lot of lectures all over the country, uh, increasingly over the wor- around the world. And, but really my design choices these days mostly come down to accessorizing in the morning. And I, I take bracelets and <laughs> earrings pretty seriously. Pretty seriously. Anybody who takes time to put together a well put together look it is respect because that's a commitment. <laughs> um, well, thanks. This was fun. Thank you. Bye.